Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 32, Deuteronomy chapters 23 and 24. Uh, We're going to finish up Deuteronomy 23 today, move into chapter 24. And the last verses of chapter 23 that we looked at were uh, verses 18 and 19. Uh, the matter of the prostitutes who worked for a pagan temple as a supposedly holy profession simply because it profited those who controlled that temple. And in the same context as prostitution was an introduction to the concept of not receiving money from ill-gotten gain and then giving it to God as an offering. Right? Because he would never acknowledge or accept it. And the reason for this is that what a person is actually doing with such an act is presenting to the Lord something that's the product of adultery and then expecting him to declare it as a good thing just because it's been given with a good, although misguided, intention. All right. So let's pick up Deuteronomy 23 at verse 20, and we're going to reread this short section. So Deuteronomy chapter 23, which is uh, page um, 222. Yeah, right, we're going to start, sorry, start at 223 at 20. There's just a couple of, uh, couple of paragraphs here. You are not to lend it interest to your brother, no matter whether the loan is of money, food, or anything else that can earn interest. To an outsider, you may lend it interest, but to your brother, you're not to lend it interest, so that Adonai, your God, will prosper you in everything you set out to do in the land you are entering in order to take possession of it. When you make a vow to Adonai, your God, you're not to delay in fulfilling it, for Adonai, your God, will certainly demand it of you, and your failure to do so will be your sin. If you choose not to make a vow at all, that will not be a sin for you. But if a vow passes your lips, you must take care to perform it according to what you voluntarily vowed to Adonai your God, what you promised in words spoken aloud. When you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat enough grapes to satisfy your appetite, but you're not to put any in your basket. When you enter your neighbor's field of growing grain, you may pluck ears with your hand, but you're not to put a sickle to your neighbor's grain. Now, this next law is that it's part of a family, if you would, of commandments that, that I labeled as the laws of true religion. That is, in the sense, same sense that Yeshua's brother, James, defined true religion. True religion means to take the spirit of the law and add a generous helping of mercy and love and put it into practical application with Holy Spirit guidance. That's true religion. Okay. This particular law that we just read about has to do with making a loan to someone. And the rule is that if the borrower is a brother, an Israelite, a full citizen of Israel, okay, then interest is not to be charged. But To a foreigner, the complete Jewish Bible says outsider, charging interest is acceptable. Now the word being translated as foreigner or stranger or outsider, depending on your Bible version, is nochri. Nochri. And nochri is the classification of a foreigner who has no ties to Israel. He doesn't identify himself with Israel. And generally speaking, he has no allegiance to Israel other than perhaps expressing some measure of gratitude all right, for being allowed to live in peace alongside Israel and the land for one reason or another. Now, typically this law is considered to be referring to traveling merchants right, who, who are passing through from distant lands or, or, or foreign merchants who've set up a, a business in Israel because they can make a good living there. Therefore, to lend money or food or generally 
anything of value to this kind of a person had to do with a business proposition as opposed to the underlying premise for one Hebrew lending to another Hebrew. And that premise is that the Hebrew borrower was a poor person who was in dire straits and maybe his health and welfare were in danger if he didn't get a helping hand. Now, particularly in the days of Moses and Joshua, there is no evidence that a system of loaning money, that is silver, gold, right, had actually been set up within Israel. Um, rather, it was generally food in the form of, of grain or, or produce that was lent. Lenders of money certainly had been established elsewhere in the region, and the loaning of money to the poor for profit was common, and it was very expensive to the borrower. Records from ancient Mesopotamian cultures show that typically interest was 25% on a loan of silver and 50% on the loan of grain. Okay, That was the norm. So such interest simply served to make the poor poorer and the wealthy wealthier. These Nohri who lived in Israel undoubtedly came from nations where they could borrow money if they wanted to, but at horrendous interest rates. The Lord says that Israel is not obligated to subsidize these foreign businessmen by loaning them what they desired at no interest. But Israel is obligated to loan to the poor, to the poor Hebrews, at no interest, and also the genuinely for poor foreigners living among them as well, because it is an obligation among Israelites not to profit at the misfortune of another. Now, it's a knee-jerk reaction today to look at these laws and to, to, to think to ourselves how awful it is that loan companies make such fortunes lending money to average citizens. Credit card companies charge 20%, 30% interest and more. Car title loan companies, pawn shops, will charge even more than that. And almost always, it's to the socially disadvantaged in our society. But, but we have to be careful not to equate apples and oranges. Okay, Too much, especially in America, there are those who are labeled as poor because they have been terribly foolish with their money or with their credit or they're in a hurry and they don't want to wait for something so they make a foolish bargain. Or perhaps they refuse to work or to get the education available to everyone to, that, that can get them a decent job. We also have people who overindulge in alcohol or drugs and then lose everything. And then we all tend to lump them all in with the poor and the disadvantaged. The Bible would generally not do so. As personal responsibility and the bearing of consequences of one's own decisions and actions is at the core of scripturally based living. We find numerous laws and proverbs throughout the world, a word, New Testament included, right, that, that uh, subjects the drunkard or the, the worthless son of parents to execution and the lazy and the foolish to suffer their fate, even though it might be very heartbreaking to witness it. God's definition of poverty is that perhaps through bad health, or being intentionally oppressed by society, or, or they're not being work available, or because unanticipated death in, within their families or destruction have befallen them, or, or any number of other conditions whereby through no fault of their own, right, they're, they're unable to reasonably support themselves or their families. Poverty in the Bible is not defined as overusing your credit and then having your house repossessed. So now you live in a small rental apartment. That's not poverty. Poverty is not taking a bus to work 
because you don't own a car, even though taking the bus may be time-consuming and inconvenient. Poverty means you don't have enough to eat. You have no roof over your head. You have no warm coat to wear when it's cold. In the biblical era, women and children, and especially widows and orphans, could be found in life-threatening situations because they were unable to care for themselves due to the way society at that time traditionally operated. The disabled and the ill fell into this category, as did foreigners who came to Israel to escape slavery from their foreign masters. God says that all Israel is to help these folks and ensure that they have enough to survive, otherwise they'll call out to him. And because of their lack of mercy, God will blame them. And those who turn their backs on the most vulnerable of society will be committing sin against the Lord. And there's going to be consequences for it. Now, essentially, this is a law about social responsibility and inherent fairness. And by the way, Jesus had a great deal to say on that subject. Now, the next law is stated in verses 22 through 24, and it opens up a truly fascinating subject around which many doctrines of Judaism and Christianity have been formed. It's the subject of making vows to Yehovah. And this law states that when you make a vow, which means that you make a promise of some sort to the Lord and then invoke his name as, as surety, that one is to keep that promise and perform it in a timely fashion. To not keep that vow is a sin, regardless of the nature of that vow or how circumstances might have radically changed since you made that vow. Even circumstances you could never have reasonably imagined. Since it seems like practically every chapter in the Bible deals with people making or breaking vows of one sort or another, let's examine this a little bit so we can wrap our minds around this very ancient custom of vow-making to a god. Now, Now, it's good in our current era to remember that in times past, the existence of gods and goddesses and other spirit beings as well was as universally accepted and believed as it is for the necessity of a human to breathe air and drink water if he wants to live. It's only since the period of the Enlightenment in the early 1700s that certain philosophers like Kant and Voltaire and Hume challenged that universal belief and said that only the unenlightened and ignorant accept accept such superstitious nonsense that there is an invisible, all-powerful God, or that there were angels, or, or that there are spirit beings of any kind, because this premise wasn't scientifically verifiable. Thus, we have the birth of atheism and secular humanism barely 300 years ago. My point is that prior to the 1700s, vow-making to the gods was as usual as eating a meal. It was no different for the Israelites than for the rest of the world, except for one thing. It is said of the pagan deities that they want their followers to make vows and pledges. But the Lord God of Israel says... He just assumed a person did not make vows and pledges to him. Why did those pagan temples, with their pagan priests, enthusiastically endorse vow-making? Because vow-making meant bringing a gift to that god. In the end, of course, that gift wound up in the hands of the temple priests. It was no different in Israel. Because when a person made a vow... It required a sacrifice and an offering to begin it and complete it. And many of those offerings were given to the priesthood. In Israel, the purposes for making a vow varied widely. 
In general, a vow is a petition to the Lord for his assistance. Maybe a person desperately wanted something to happen, or maybe not to happen. Perhaps they needed relief from trouble. They may have sought victory in battle, healing from disease. The one who made the vow customarily promised to do something for the Lord if he would acknowledge their need or desire. The payment or offering to the Lord was usually something of value. In the case of a Nazarite vow, however, the initial offering was often to abstain from something that brought personal pleasure, like wine, for instance. In the pagan world, vows were basically designed as divine bribes. It was expected that the worshiper was literally purchasing the favor of some particular god or goddess by means of their vow offering. Jehovah says... He doesn't need food. He doesn't need drink. He's already the owner of everything in existence, so to offer him some kind of money or valuable object in exchange for his action has utterly no value to him. Further, he is sovereign. He cannot be purchased. You're not going to change his will with money. That still didn't keep a significant proportion, though, of the Hebrew population from trying it. And the results were often terrible. Now, though not encouraging vows, the Lord also doesn't say there's anything wrong or sinful with it. So in verse 23, it says that if one chooses not to ever make a vow to Jehovah, it is not sin. Christ goes so far as to say it's far better to just make our yes, yes, and our no, no. And avoid this whole vow-making process. Why? Because as it says in the next verse, and I paraphrase, whatever you promise to me, you will perform it. Or else. You see, it's those unintended consequences of making a promise to the Lord that's the issue. We can't see one second ahead into the future. So how can we be sure that we can follow through with something that we vow to do or not do? That might be weeks or months in the making or involve somebody else or or be something over which we have very little control. Perhaps the most tragic consequence in the entire Bible of having the best of intentions and making a vow, but experiencing the most horrific or unintended consequences in the story of Jephthah, who wanted the Lord to bless him in battle. And so he vowed that if the Lord would win the victory for him, he would offer as a burnt offering the first thing that walked through his door when he returned home from his military campaign. Naturally, expecting it to be some kind of animal that would greet him, He was devastated when his only daughter excitedly burst through that door and rushed to him. Since the battle had indeed been won, he piously followed through with his vow. There are many lessons to this story. We're not going to get into them today. Just know that Jephthah followed through because he fully understood that this law of Deuteronomy 23 has no exceptions. The only two things I do want to mention about it for now, or what we can learn from this episode are, that God did not want and did not ask, nor does he accept the human sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter. And two, God didn't require a vow from Jephthah in order to provide the victory he'd hoped for. That was all on him. I'm pretty sure that if he could speak from his grave, Jephthah's advice to us all would be that other than perhaps for your wedding vows, don't make any. Because doing so is very dangerous. Not just for you, 
but for who, others who just might be affected by that vow. The final commandment of this chapter occurs in verses 25 and 26 and it concerns the right to eat from your neighbor's crops. And the rule is that if a person can pinch off some heads of grain and eat them, or pluck some grapes and, and eat them to satisfy their immediate need, that's fine. But they can't ask for a doggy bag. <laughs> they can't come and fill up a basket. They can't take a sickle and actually do some harvesting and take it home with them. Now, this really wasn't about feeding the poor, so we set that aside. Because for the poor, the laws of gleaning had already been well established. Okay? And indeed, the poor weren't even restricted to only eating what they could consume on the spot. This particular law is, again, for travelers. Right? It was perfectly permissible in ancient times to walk through someone's field on a journey. Not everywhere that one needed to travel had a real well-defined path or a roadway. Sometimes it was necessary to simply set out in a general direction. And since fields were laid out everywhere, it would have been much too arduous to walk around the edges of all those fields to reach your destination. Plus, there were generally no rest stops along the way. And since most common folks traveled on foot, they didn't want to carry those large loads. So as they were passing through a field or a vineyard and became hungry, the law permitted them to eat the produce of that field or vine in a very limited way. Well, we get an interesting picture of this exact situation, really, in the New Testament, in Matthew 12, when Yeshua and his disciples got into this dispute with some Pharisees over there plucking and eating some grain from a field that they had been walking through in accordance with this law of travelers in Deuteronomy 23. But the issue wasn't about stealing or taking advantage of a farmer. Rather, it was that it happened on a Sabbath. Remember this story? And thus Yeshua was accused of defiling the Sabbath. Undoubtedly, this was because he had walked more than the distance permitted on a Sabbath, as defined by the Pharisees, in order to have been in a field outside of town, and he was gathering grain to eat, therefore that was also considered work, according to some traditions. Yeshua didn't seem to think that the laws he gave to Moses 1,300 years earlier should be countermanded by the latest series of man-made doctrines that Judaism had come up with. Let's move on to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Suppose a man marries a woman, consummates the marriage, but later finds her displeasing because he has found her offensive in some respect. He writes her a divorce document, gives it to her, and sends her away from his house. She leaves his house, goes and becomes another man's wife. But the second husband dislikes her and writes her again. Gives it to her and sends her away from his house. Or the second husband, whom she married, dies. In such a case, her first husband who sent her away, may not take her again as his wife because she's now defiled. It would be detestable to Adonai. You are not to bring about sin in the land Adonai your God is giving you as your inheritance. If a man has recently married his wife, he's not to be subject to military service. He is to be free of external obligations and left at home for one year to make his new wife happy. No one may take a mill or even an upper millstone as collateral for a loan because that would be taking as collateral, collateral the debtor's very means of sustenance. If a man kidnaps any of his brothers, fellow members of the community of Israel, and makes him his slave or sells him, that kidnapper must die. In this way you will put an end to such wickedness among you. When there is an outbreak of Sarat, be careful to observe and do just what the Kohanim, the priests, who are Levites, teach you. Take care to do as I ordered them. 
Remember what Adonai your God did to Miriam on the road after you left Egypt. When you make any kind of loan to your neighbor, you're not to enter his house to take his collateral. You must stand outside. And the borrower borrower will bring that collateral outside to you if he's poor. You're not to go to bed with what um, he gave as collateral in your possession. Rather, you must restore the pledged item at sunset. Then he will go to sleep wearing his garment, and he will bless you. This will be an upright deed of yours before Adonai your God. You're not to exploit a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether one of your brothers or a foreigner living in your land, in your town. You're to pay him his wages the day he earns them before sunset, for he's poor. He looks forward to being paid. Otherwise, he will cry out against you to Adonai, and it will be your sin. Fathers are not to be executed for the children, nor are children to be executed for their fathers. Every person will be executed for his own sin. You're not to deprive the foreigner or the orphan of the justice which is his due. You're not to take a widow's clothing as collateral for a loan. Rather, remember, you were a slave in Egypt. Adonai, your God, redeemed you from there. That's why I am ordering you to do this. When harvesting the grain in your field, if you forgot a sheaf of grain there, you are not allowed to go back and get it. It will remain there for the foreigner, the orphan, the widow, so that Adonai, your God, will bless you in all the work you do. When you beat your olive tree, don't go back over the branches again. The olives that are left will be for the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. When you gather the grapes from your vineyard, you are not to return and pick grapes a second time. What is left will be for the foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. Remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt. That's why I'm ordering you to do this. It's interesting that although we read often in the Torah, in the Bible, about a Hebrew man giving his wife a a writ of divorce, a a, a get in Hebrew, in fact, there are no direct and definitive laws of divorce in the Torah. In other words, while we do find laws about marriage and then remarriage, we don't find procedures or rules about how or why divorce was accomplished. Apparently, since divorce was customary and usual in the Middle East, the Hebrews generally took it for granted. And the reasons for divorce and the procedures that they also followed were simply done according to long-standing customs. So long-standing... And of such common knowledge was the divorce protocol that the explanation of them isn't even written down in the Bible. We only get hints and pieces in the Psalms, the Prophets, the Proverbs, and a few of the biblical narrative stories. The other thing we instantly recognize is that as common as divorce was in Moses' era, so was remarriage. Therefore, just as with the making of vows, whereby the only real set of rules that the Lord gives about a vow is that if you make one, keep it, or it's sin, so it is that the Lord says that if you divorce, there are some prohibitions concerning getting married again. Therefore, there is no written law per se that says you can't divorce, and yet the Lord makes it clear that marriage was to be for a lifetime. The prohibition concerning remarriage that we find in the first few verses of chapter chapter 24 is that if a man decides to divorce his wife, and then she goes and gets remarried to another man, and then her new husband either dies or he too divorces this woman, she can't go back and remarry her original husband. About 800 years ago, the Rambam, Maimonides, said that he believed that the reason for this particular law 
was to stop what was essentially a rampant wife-swapping scheme, whereby a man would marry and then by design divorce his wife, take on another for a short-term tryst, go back and remarry his first wife, and then repeat this process fairly often with other women. The idea was that by legally marrying and divorcing and marrying again and divorcing again, he would have his sexual lusts met with different women because technically he was legally married to each of them, even if it was maybe even just a few days. Therefore, he wouldn't be breaking the laws of adultery by having sex outside of his marriage or outside of wedlock. Like I've said before, it seems, whether Jew or Christian, we're always on the lookout for a good loophole. But let's be clear, the Lord does not condone divorce. Malachi 2.16, for I hate divorce, says Adonai, the God of Israel. And him who covers his clothing with violence says Adonai Savot. Therefore, take heed to your spirit. Don't break faith. Now, the reason stated here in Deuteronomy for the first husband not being allowed to remarry his own ex-wife that he had divorced after she had remarried and divorced is stated in verse 4. It says, now she is defiled. Therefore, if that first husband did such a thing as to remarry an ex-wife under these circumstances, he'd bring down that defilement upon the land of Israel, and the land is too sanctified to allow it. Now, uh, let me point out one thing before we move on. Where it says in verse 1 that the reason that the man divorces his wife is because, depending on the translation you use, he finds something obnoxious about her, or he hates her, or she displeases him. See, this is not an attempt to create an exhaustive list of divinely acceptable reasons for a man to divorce his wife. Okay? This is simply a generality explaining that obviously the man doesn't want her anymore for whatever reason. And it's also not saying that it's fine in God's eyes that a man really doesn't have to have a good reason to divorce. The law was vague enough, unfortunately, that we find St. Paul commenting on what he believes is the only good reasons for divorce, and even then, the whole thing is very distasteful and ugly at its best. It's instructive that the Bible looks at divorce as primary, primarily a failure of marriage. That is, while marriage is an institution, divorce is not an institution. It's just an improperly broken union. 1 Corinthians 7.15 But if the unbelieving spouse separates himself, let him be separated. In circumstances like these, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to a life of peace. Jesus also had some direct words about this subject. Matthew 19.9 now, now what I say to you is that whoever divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality and marries another woman, he himself commits adultery. Remember that in the Bible era, it was the men who did the divorcing. So don't stretch this meaning to say that while a man can divorce his wife for her adultery, that a woman can't divorce a man for his. Right? Take note of this. At least according to the law of Deuteronomy 23, there is no objection to a man divorcing his wife and technically vice versa, and then they're getting remarried. Okay? The prohibition against remarriage <clears throat> is only as concerns one partner getting married to another person in the interim. See the difference? Mm -hmm. Now starting in verse 5, we begin to move away from the theme that's been the context for the past two chapters, mm -hmm. the seventh commandment that prohibits adultery. Now we're entering a section that focuses more on humanitarian issues. And the first regulation is that a man who is just married can be deferred from military service for a year. 
The stated reason is to bring happiness to his wife. Now, versions vary a little bit, but literally what this says in verse 5 is, when a man takes a new wife. It is the words new wife that is key, because this doesn't apply to remarriage. That is, it only applies to a wife that a man has never before been married to, therefore she is new. Okay? On the surface, this seems like this deferment seems like a very nice thing to do. Giving a new bride and groom a year to be together and enjoy each other's company before he heads off to war. But the happiness that the man brings his new wife has far more to do with her getting pregnant and giving birth than simply the pleasure and excitement typical of newlyweds. Today, it's in vogue, and it's usually the parental advice, for a recently married couple to, to put off having children right? until they settled into their married life and had a sufficient amount of time together just as a couple. But in the biblical era, it was the greatest hope that on their wedding night, the new wife would become pregnant. And if not then, as absolutely soon as possible. Having children, hopefully a son, was everything for a new family. And especially so in the case where a man is soon leaving to, to fight in a battle with the real possibility that he may die. Having a son meant that that man's life essence and his bloodline would carry on. For the wife, it meant that she would not have to bear the shame of having been married but not producing children. Remember, for the Hebrews, the primary duty they bore in the Abrahamic covenant was to be fruitful, exactly. To be fruitful, to reproduce. For a man or a woman to fail to procreate was a failure to live up to that covenant. It was a very serious matter that brought great public shame. The next laws that are contained in verses 6 and 7 are much broader than, than it really might seem at a casual reading. These laws are all about the respect for life. The first one concerns what happens when a person loans a very poor person some money or food and wants some type of guarantee, a collateral, for this loan. And the example given is that the lender may not take the upper millstone from the borrower as collateral. A grain mill was the essential tool of everyday Middle Eastern life. Every Middle Eastern family had one and needed one. These devices, even though they were very primitive, were actually expensive and pretty difficult to make. They, they would be handed down from generation to generation. It was common that a grain mill would be used for hundreds of years before a new one was needed. About four years ago, I picked up a grain mill like this one in Israel that had been manufactured, it was found in the city of David around the time of Moses. All right, And um, they could just tell from the way it had been built in the era that it had probably been in use for eight or nine hundred years. All right. These things are handed down. It was made out of basalt. Now the lower part was a heavy flat stone surface where the grain would lay. And then the upper was the smaller part that a person would hold with their hand. And uh, it was, of course, used to crush the, the grain against the lower part. But if the upper millstone was taken or lost, the grain mill was essentially useless. Grain would be ground every day, daily, into meal or flour. To take a family's mill from them was to deny them a means of sustenance. To deny a family a means of sustenance was to deny them life. And this is exactly the point of this law and also of the next one that deals with kidnapping. 
And the principle is, well, it's one that at times gets kind of pushed to the rear in our wealth-oriented capitalistic society, and it's this. No matter what the situation might be, it is morally reprehensible to take from a person the only means they have to make a living. Right? Especially when it's merely to guarantee or to satisfy a loan. So it follows that a person must not steal another life, which is what kidnapping amounts to. In the Bible era, kidnapping refers to taking someone for the purpose of enslaving them for their personal use or selling them to another for a profit. It was typically understood that mistreatment was also involved. Treating the victim more like an animal or chattel. The penalty for doing this is to be expected. A life for a life. Execution for the criminal. When we consider what this means, we have to take into account the way society operated at that time. In battle, it was perfectly usual for the victors to take people and use them as their slaves. This was not considered kidnapping, but rather simply the gathering of spoils of war. In addition, especially among Israel, it was usual that the women and the children would become assimilated into Israeli society rather than be viewed as the property of some particular individual. By the way, we've seen in earlier laws that the mistreatment of slaves and servants, foreign or Hebrew, is banned. And a very good example of this was that Shechem incident where Levi and Simeon massacred all the adult males and the women and the children of that city, it says, were taken as slaves. But basically this meant that they were forcibly added to the population of Israel, yet at the same time they weren't considered subhuman or, or, or people to mercilessly use for cheap labor. Okay. Now, while the law of kidnapping didn't necessarily pertain only to potential Israelite citizens as the victims, the way it's phrased in verse 7 means that this was kind of the point of this particular regulation. Now, I want to end this week's lesson by making a point. And I hope I'm able to explain well enough. Because the next few laws in particular are excellent examples of what, what I'm going to talk to you about. Further, when we can but finally internalize the, the amazing existence and nature of the patterns found in God's Word, then we'll finally be in a position to understand His Word more fully and also be able to better untangle the prophecies that we all anxiously and sometimes fearfully wait to be fulfilled in the near future. Here's the point. I've said many times that the law of Moses is not only real and tangible, it is at the same time a type and a shadow of things to come. It's not one or the other. The law is both. It's a duality that, that exists and operates on at least two levels simultaneously. In, in some cases, those shadowy things to come have already happened as a result of the advent of Messiah Yeshua. On the other hand, the laws given through Moses on Mount Sinai, they weren't parables, they weren't glib sayings, nor were they impossible ideals. And therefore, there wasn't any serious expectation by Yehovah that they'd ever be obeyed. Listen to Deuteronomy 30.10. 
However, all this will happen only if you pay attention to what Adonai your God says so that you obey all of his mitzvot and regulations which are written in the book of the Torah. If you turn to Adonai your God with all your heart and all your being. For this mitzvah, commandments, which I'm giving you today, is not too hard for you. It's not beyond your reach. See, God fully intended that all of these rules and regulations of Torah law be followed. He didn't give Moses on Mount Sinai the ten suggestions and then follow them up with 603 guidelines. And yet we know that underlying all of these laws were foundational principles on the one hand, and on the other, the laws and commandments were a means to demonstrate these underlying principles and ideals that would eventually be brought to its to their ultimate fruition by Messiah. It's no wonder that folks for all for ages and ages have struggled with this connection between the law and Christ. I mean, I, I took you here to tell you that the pattern of demonstrating God's principles by embedding them in many biblical narratives and stories of whatever time period they, they took place, only to have those same principles become better understood and then more broadly applied in stories that took place in late yet later generations is not just limited to the giving of the law that was then later realized in Jesus Christ. Okay. Therefore, as we look closer, we see, for instance, that the principles that were embedded in the story of creation were expounded upon in the marvelous stories of the patriarchs. And then the principles embedded in the stories of the patriarchs were expanded upon and made even more visible for us in the giving of the law. And then the principles laid out in the law were taken to yet another level of intent and operation with the coming of Yeshua as he more fully explained the spirit with which they were to be obeyed. And then the principles acted out in Jesus' life and spoken about in his parables are going to become even more refined and further realized as he then rules and reigns in his millennial kingdom. So perfectly, from beginning to end, do all of these God principles connect that despite the thousands of years of progression in mankind's history and the amazing changes and the, all the variations within human societies, we will see the exact same principles employed in the perfection of the millennial kingdom that we did all the way back in creation. And this is because these scriptural God principles are immutable. They never change. They even remain the same whether applied in heaven or on earth or even on the new earth to come. They're the same. When we read the fascinating stories in the Torah that took place in the era of the Patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those underlying core God principles that are, frankly, not always so easy to pull out and, and, and identify are actually setting the stage for the many laws and commandments that Moses would give at a later date on Mount Sinai to the people of Israel. And as we read and learn about the law, like we're doing in Deuteronomy, it, it's a really a worthwhile exercise to take some of these laws now, then go back, take them with us, and go back to the 
book of Genesis and then watch the principles expressed in these laws appear and play out. Play out within these stories. See how it all connects. Principles that that, that we never recognized before in those very early Bible stories suddenly and plainly appeared to us. There they are. Many 20th and 21st century Bible scholars have become so acutely aware of these impossibly seamless, perfectly interlaced connections that they can only conclude that it was all manufactured and woven together after the fact by some ingenious editors. Folks, this is taught in a great deal of seminaries today. It is now the position of many modern academics that, for instance, the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy had to be written before the book of Genesis or that Genesis had major modifications to it at a a much later date. And the reason that these... The the reason for that thinking is that they see that these anonymous editors perpetrated a sham in order that the laws from Mount Sinai would appear in all of their underlying principles back in the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that, that had occurred hundreds of years earlier. They draw this assumption Because while their intellect is large, their faith is so small. They just can't accept that God's principles could be present so early in the Bible and then move along and remain utterly unchanged, consistent, even growing in their depth as all the centuries rolled by, all the way through the book of Revelation. Fellow believers, if you truly want to know what God is going to do in the future, look to the patterns of the past. That's where you're going to find it. If someone says to you that as that as yet yet unfulfilled, biblical prophecy must happen in a way that basically undoes prior God principles in favor of some new ones, be very skeptical. Next time, we're going to take a couple of these laws from Deuteronomy 24, and we're going to go back in time to watch the foundation of these laws appear to us in the stories of the patriarchs.